Thank you all again for joining us for our second liberal arts lunch uh, conversation about things you're not gonna find in your textbook. Um, this week, we are super excited to have Denise Subisareta join us today. Uh, based on her suggestion at the end of last week's conversation about the uh, lasting influence of Jim Crow, Denise suggested uh, topics related to Puerto Rico. Uh, and so she has joined us. She has worked with us on this presentation, thankfully, and so she'll be presenting with us today. But I do want to remind everybody, uh, Dr. Keefe and I are well aware uh, that we are presenting these topics to you in this series from our perspective as white academics. We acknowledge that, um, and that is why we're reaching out to students at RIMCAD uh, and other faculty as well to join us in these conversations and help us build these conversations. So again, today, uh, from Denise's suggestion, uh, we are going to be talking about Puerto Rico. And I would like to further add, uh, I, I do not speak Spanish, and uh, I spoke to Denise about uh, how I should do this presentation, whether I should use the English translations or use uh, the Spanish to the best of my ability. And uh, Denise encouraged me to try the Spanish. So uh, if it, uh, if I stumble on the Spanish, please forgive me. I'm doing my best to honor that the heritage of Puerto Ricans. Um, this picture here is, is taken from the University of Puerto Rico, and I love it. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of, of heraldry, symbols, and flags. And what I, what I love about this bell tower is that it incorporates uh, two coats of arms, and it's the two coats of arms of the two oldest uh, universities in uh, the Western Hemisphere, uh, one being in, from the United States, and the other one being from what the, the Spanish colonies, the what originally was called the Viceroy of, of Mexico, and, and then they wound up breaking uh, the Spanish uh, colonies in, uh, in what we call Latin America or the Western Hemisphere into, into other Viceroys. But it's, it's a, I just think this bell tower represents that dual identity of, of Puerto Rico. And uh, Denise, um, Denise and I had a wonderful conversation yesterday, and when we were, we were uh, working on this uh, title, what we were going to uh, present today, I had thrown out as a, a working title, Living in Two Worlds, American and Latino. And, um, and Denise, maybe you could uh, jump in and, and share uh, a little bit of that conversation we had yesterday. So it's an interesting conversation as we see expansion of the use of the word Latino or Latinx, which we've been seeing a lot more. And culturally, when we speak of the difference between Latino and Hispanic, the real origin of the word Latino comes from Brazilian and Portuguese origin. So it's these two separate cultures living in Latin America, trying to distinguish and separate themselves from the Spanish colonized countries that are still within Latin America. So this doesn't include most Mexicans. This doesn't include anyone in the Caribbean islands. So there's constantly a back and forth of, a, of the difference between Latino and Hispanic. And Hispanic just means a country that has been colonized by Spain, that speaks the language, um, but they are not of Latin American origin. So I tend to go for Hispanic, even though it's had some interesting connotation over the years. But I, I feel that with the actual definition of Latino, it's really important to make these distinctions and also to notice how these different cultures are still being segregated within their own continents and countries. And, and when we were talking, I think one of the things that I think Denise and I interrupted each other saying the same thing at the same time, at the end of the day, it's also probably best to just call people 
uh, by the country of their origin that maybe maybe even Puerto Rican transcends even the term Hispanic and, and Latino, correct? Absolutely. Calling someone by their country of origin is also important so you're not negating the initial inhabitants and all of these indigenous people and the cultural mixing that was needed to create these cultures within these countries. Thank you. It, and it was an illuminating conversation that said we had, for sure. Thank you. It really was. <laughs> Dr. Black? Uh, yes. So, sorry about that. My internet went out for a brief moment. Today's presentation, we are going to introduce you to the indigenous, Span uh, indigenous peoples um, in this region, uh, Spanish um, involvement, colonization, uh, and the resulting uh, effects on uh, Puerto Rican Americans um, through the educational system. So we'll do that through the 20th, 21st century demographics, the 50s movements, Puerto Rican veterans in particular, we will highlight that. And then again, we'll move into how that has influenced uh, higher education for people of color, particularly Puerto Ricans today in America. And just take a look at that, uh, the photograph of the flag. We'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes. So before we get started uh, into what we bec what becomes known as Puerto Rico, we wanted to honor and recognize the um, the indigenous people who came uh, before the Spanish um, colonists and later the American um, government and American people as well. Uh, so there were at least four waves of Native Americans that that came to the to the what we call Puerto Rico today. Um, the first true groups came uh, tens of thousands of years ago, um, and not much is known about them. The Arawak people, they came starting uh, about, maybe about uh, 10,000 years ago. We know a little bit more about them. They, they in many ways, they were, they, they have the, the oldest presence that we can find in terms of archeology span and such in the area. And then there was this, this people called the Taino people that Denise is gonna talk about, they were originally in the Lesser Antilles, the southern part of the Caribbean. But as the uh, Carib people who came from, come from originally South America, as they were moving into the, uh, the Lesser Antilles, it pushed the Taino people into the Northern Antilles. And, and so when, at the point of contact, uh, the Taino people were, were mostly uh, um, in Cuba, Hispaniola, and Puerto Rico. Denise, uh, could you help us with uh, um, the pronunciation of the Taino word for Puerto Rico? Boriquen, <laughs> which and, is actually ends up, yeah, it ends up being translated into Spanish to the Borinquen with a Q-U, which the Spanish tend to do. Um, and it's interesting because we're going to speak about Taino language a little bit later and these languages and these words that get absorbed by the Spanish and then get absorbed by America and end up becoming part of our natural day-to-day -day dialects that we don't even realize. Um, the Taino, unlike the Carib, were much more um, relaxed. and <laughs> They didn't have this, this need for warfare and trade. So they were very docile, you know, just calm people. I mean, they built, they built swords out of wood as to not hurt their enemy. Um, though they are actually noted as one of the first tribes to include poison in their arrowheads, but that was only used for hunting. They weren't allowed to be used on other people. So this goes to show you the type of, of base that this group had already instilled in them, this idea of community. Um, the Taino genocide, when we talk about it as in most of your textbooks, if you did learn about it, you see that it was discovered by what, who I'm going to call Mr. CC. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And so this Italian slash Spaniard conquistador caused a massive level of genocide, but at the same time, the Taino people are expanded throughout a considerable amount of the Caribbean. So this genocide is multifaceted. Not only is there just straight up murder and annihilation, there's also germ warfare, which is coming in with all of the Spanish and all of these conquistadors who did not come here with women. So the few Tainos that are left now generationally through DNA with a small bit of it are all products of what uh, we for lack of better terminology, have to call the Spanish rape and part of the Taino genocide of their people. As you see on the slide, we're going to mention the BIA, which is also interesting for the Taino. They do not fall under any of these localized native or Indian acts. So what the argument also is from indigenous people that the remainder of Taino, even though no matter what the percentage you are, is no longer considered an indigenous group because they were genocided. Though we have proof that Taino DNA exists in over 60% of the Puerto Rican population. And I so just, it's interesting we get it from both sides. I want to clarify, <laughs> if, if you're not sure, BIA is the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which falls under the Department of Interior. And, and just an interesting anecdote, uh, historically, the BIA was actually classified under, under the Department of War. So it kind of tells you the mindset of the people who were organizing um, the relationships between the United States and the indigenous people. And, and I also just want to uh, pick up on what Denise said by, by talking about that uh, there is there is um, indigenous versus indigenous discrimination as well because some of the recognized tribes do do not want that that club to be expanded and and they actively work to keep other tribes on the mainland or in Puerto Rico from recognition, but at the same time the Puerto Rican people themselves uh, both culturally and and in terms of his historic. Um, Preservation. There, there have been the revival movements about uh, Taino culture, and you can see there on the right, there's a reconstructed uh, Taino village. And on the on the bottom, you can see those little flags. Those are they're not historically accurate. They're modern flags, but they're part of this reclamation process of trying to reclaim identity. And speaking to that point, we see the image on the right. These are uh, members of Puerto Rico's uh, remaining uh, Taino uh, peoples with Taino DNA reclaiming that heritage, uh, pointing to what Denise was talking about with this abundance of Taino DNA still left, still part of the culture. And people are, there is a formal movement in Puerto Rico, the Taino movement, where people are looking back to past visual culture, past religious traditions, and they're bringing those back, trying to bring a resurgence of acknowledgement to the fact that there are still um, Taino traditions and culture and people still alive, still persistent. Uh, and the image on the left is exciting as an art historian because this is one of many recent discoveries um, in several of the caves around Puerto Rico and uh, among other islands in the Caribbean of um, indigenous cave art that we have not previously known about. University of Leicester, I believe in 2017, uh, made a huge discovery of these wonderful representations of what we believe now to be indigenous uh, visual culture. Lots of geometric patterning, lots of uh, sort of facial feature, um, uh, humanoid features uh, in these works of visual culture. So we have this connection to the past happening right now with this contemporary Taino movement to reclaim and re-acknowledge. So in speaking of that, um, if we go all the way back to I believe 1989 with uh, 
one of the it's not one of the first and it's not the latest native graves uh, protection and repatriation act in 1989 what this does is that it requires um any individual or institution when they find native american indigenous uh, objects or human remains they must be repatriated back to an indigenous or native community with the taino repatriation though uh that's happening now uh because of uh, an abundance of finding more objects um what happened in 2003, there was a, a collection of over 5,000 objects that had been given to um, the Smithsonian Museum by Mark Harrington in 1915. From 1915 to 1919, he was in Cuba and the Caribbean, um, you know, digging around, finding things that weren't his. And he took 5,000 objects and several human remains uh, and one gigantic uh, stalactite that he cut in five pieces uh, and gave to the Smithsonian. Um, in 2003, 479 of those objects, I believe, were repatriated back to the Caribbean. And because Taino individuals uh, were uh, unable to be there for many different reasons, and these objects have to be repatriated back to Native communities, members of the Mohawk community, members of the Navajo community, and members of the Kaw community of North America came down and served as the sort of patrons or facilitators of this repatriation ceremony in place of the Taino who, as Denise pointed out, had been largely killed off, even though there is still this acknowledgement and recognizing of the Taino uh, still today. And as beautiful as that anecdote is uh, about the, um, the community among the indigenous people, I, I want to go back to the 1915 and Mark Harrington and remind you or, or, or share with you that there was no way for the Puerto Rican people to stop him, that the, that the island was under direct control of, the, of Washington. And so there was no way for the Puerto Rican people to control their own artifacts. So this leads us again to what Denise was talking about earlier with uh, Mr. CC. Um, this is a representation of him in a very Western, very westernized, very heroicized portrayal of Christopher Columbus. Um, we see him as this sort of off-central figure. Um, what we call these types of compositions that were really popular uh, in the late 18th, early to mid 19th century in Europe and America, we call these history paintings. It's a whole genre of painting that's really meant in a large scale to celebrate uh, biblical narratives, historical narratives. Are they accurate? Most of the, t most of the time, no. And patrons and commissioners and artists would know they're not depicting accuracy. They're depicting heroism. And so here, Vanderlyn uh, was commissioned by the U.S. Uh, to depict Columbus coming to the West Indies and, quote unquote, discovering America. We have the, the planting of the flag, as we talked about with Jim Crow. But also take a look around this composition. Everything about it speaks to Western conventions of painting and how artists were trained to depict uh, certain elements within a history painting. For example, on the left side of the painting, you have the indigenous population. Um, hierarchically, uh, in terms of hierarchic scale, they're lower to the ground that speaks to their status as humans, their status as people in the painting. Then you sort of move up. You have a few of the lower rank military on the ground. Uh, they're all in dark clothing. So you view them visually as one cluster. Then you get to Christopher Columbus in the white, in the red, in the yellow, the colors of Spain, right? And he's got these strong diagonals, this implied triangle that forms his body with the flag, sort of embodying uh, the nation of Spain uh, as he's declaring this land for Spain and more indigenous off to the right. 
again, hierarchically lower in the composition. This bespeaks Western Academy training, right? And uh, Vanderlyn was trained um, in the Academy by uh, the famous portraitist of George Washington, Gilbert Stuart. Um, it is said that when he was commissioned to do this painting in 1842, he was studying in Paris, one of the first American artists to do that. Um, but a conspiracy theory is um, that he actually didn't do most of this painting. He sort of parsed it out to other artists to, to do it, but he took all the credit. Um, another interesting thing about this particular painting is the date in which it was commissioned by the US government, 1842. What was going on in 1842 from your high school history class in connection with Christopher Columbus and the West Indies and the Caribbean? We have the Florida Armed Occupation Act of 1842, wherein the government was parsing out indigenous lands of Florida, which were mostly occupied by the indigenous people, of course. So that's right next to Cuba, to Puerto Rico, the Caribbean islands, right? So in 1842, you have this uh, backlash against the Florida Armed Occupation Act. So perhaps this is speaking to that uh, intense sense of nationalism against indigenous peoples in the southeast of the United States. And I want to uh, go back to what Dr. Black said about the location of the painting. The, this painting is massive. It, it is, it's the size of like the side of a house. And, it, and in, in, in the US Capitol, there are two locations for a painting this large. One is on the House of Representatives side, one is on the Senate side. And so I, I just want to, to throw this out there and let you digest it. There are only two places in the Capitol for a painting this size, and we have chosen to put uh, Christopher Columbus in one of those two primary locations. The other painting, if you're interested, is um, the Battle of Lake Erie with Oliver Hazard Perry, who by the way is from Rhode Island, and Dr. Black, so is Gilbert Stewart. You're welcome. Um, so I want to talk about um, Spanish colonization. So on the, on the left, you see all of what we generically call nowadays Latin America, which includes South America, uh, as well as uh, sometimes people don't understand that, that, that Central America is part of North America, but culturally, linguistically, um, it, it is, it is um, combined with South America and the Caribbean, these three distinct regions. Denise already mentioned it's distinct or that it's really, while they have cultural similarities, it's really primarily language um, that they, ha they, have a, they have different traditions, different um, ethnic um, backgrounds and so forth. Um, but we're looking at, at this um, this magnifying glass, we're zooming in uh, on the right, and we're looking particularly uh, at the Northern Antilles. And I want to contextualize uh, the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico by, by pointing out that, I mean, we just celebrated the 4th of July. We know the United States declares independence in 76. We achieve independence in 83. Um, and then there, Haiti achieves it, its independence from France. The um, the Spanish territories began rebelling under Simon Bolivar in the 1820s, but look at that list on the left. Notice that who is not there, right? Well, who is not there is Cuba and Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico did have a Grito de Lares. Uh, it was the, the first rebellion um, of Puerto Rico. That was the flag on one of the first slides that I asked you to, to uh, take a look at and remember for later. So 19, I mean, 1868, that's a long time after the independence movements in the other former territories of Spain. Uh, same year, Cuba uh, has its first war. They, there are three wars of Cuban independence, um, but as tensions escalate between Cuba and the Spanish crown, 
the United States starts to get involved uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly economic, some may be altruistic, um, but in order to preserve U.S. interests in the region, famously in February um, uh, of 1898, the United States um, government sends a naval uh, emissary um, to Havana Bay to, to, you, to look after U.S. interests and kind of intimidate the Spanish authorities there. Mysteriously, on February 15th, it explodes, 260 Americans died. Uh, it is still not definitively clear why. It was probably an engine uh, error um, in the boiler room. But at the time, this became part of uh, what's called uh, yellow journalism, propaganda, and the United States declared war on Spain. What, you, what I'd like you to understand is that when the United States and Spain went to war, the United States used language of democratization. Uh, that, that we are a democracy, Spain was still a, a, a monarchy, and this, it was tied into this spreading of, of liberty around the world. But those, those words were hollow in many ways, because there were four major territories the United States took from Spain as a re result of the Spanish-American War. Those are the Philippines, um, Guam, and the Mariana Islands, I'm kind of lumping together, uh, as well as uh, Cuba and Puerto Rico. The Filipinos thought they were getting independence from Spain only to find out that they had become a colony of the United States. And they, they violently rebelled. The, the famous Filipino-American War went on for years and years. Um, Cuba was, was given fake independence. There's this thing called the Platt Amendment, where the United States basically said, you're independent, but if we disagree with anything we, that you do, we reserve the right to, to come back. And then there's Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico also thought that it might get independence, and, and, and it didn't. Um, and in, in fact, they, not only did they not get independence, they didn't have any um, home rule. They, that the government of Puerto Rico was, as I said before, it came out of Washington. The man on the right, uh, Nelson Miles Appleton, uh, one of the, the longest serving uh, and highest ranking officers in the United States military, he served from the Civil War through what are called the Indian Wars, through the Spanish-American War, and even offered to come out of retirement and fight in World War I. He's the last commanding general of the United States Army. Uh, after he retired, they changed the title to Chief of Staff. Um, but interestingly, I want you to know, he has a history of, um, of leading military action against indigenous people. He, he actually was part of not just the campaigns against the Apache, and Duramino. He was active in the Lakota Wars. He claimed credit for the capturing of um, the Nez Pierce and Chief Joseph. So here's a man whose career was, was in the military and using U.S. military force against indigenous people, and he winds up becoming the victor uh, of the battles in Puerto Rico against the Spanish army, and then is appointed as the military and later civilian governor of Puerto Rico. Last week, we talked about citizenship and, and Puerto Rican citizenship, as well as Native American citizenship, and the relationship be, uh, between citizenship and expectation, and maybe even reward. We talked about uh, that uh, indigenous Americans fought in World War I and ultimately got uh, citizenship in, I think it's 1924, in the Snyder Act. Well, the Puerto Rican, um, the people of Puerto Rico got uh, citizenship in 1917 during the war. But interestingly enough, and, and uh, Denise, if you'd like to, to um, share your feelings as well, you're more than welcome. 
nobody really asked the Puerto Ricans if they wanted citizenship. Um, and, the, and, it, and this idea of um, citizenship by blood, uh, that's the Latin there on the slide, as well as the 14th Amendment, was extended to Puerto Ricans in the, the Jones Act. And, and again, Denise, please jump in and tell me your thoughts about uh, yep. Puerto Rican citizenship. I know you have some. <laughs> oh, I have plenty. Um, so it's interesting when we look at Albizu Campos, which is listed there as well. And so he testifies against the University of Puerto Rico's dean in 1935 because he is fearful and fighting against this whitewashing of the Puerto Rican culture in the sense of he's already said plenty of times. We've been constantly dominated. We have never had independence. We do not know how to think as a free people. And so he is trying to make sure that Puerto Rico doesn't fall into this same sequence that it has already seen through Spanish rule. But what's interesting about Albizu Campos in 1935, and just like Dr. Keith had said, Puerto Ricans get citizenship in 1917, right? So this is 1935. The Fifth Amendment for um, against double jeopardy is ratified in 1791 and him being declared persona non grata by the entire school base and these deans and the governor made him open basically to being constantly persecuted. So now he's arrested for the things that he's saying and for going against the U.S. He's tried by a jury of his peers, found innocent, and then the U.S. still does not agree that he is innocent. So they try him again with an entirely new jury, completely almost comprised of American citizens. So his entire fight throughout this time is happening while you're looking at 1901 to 1905, where the Supreme Court had already ruled that the Constitution is extended to U.S. territories. So what does true citizenship mean to the Puerto Rican if the Constitution is only utilized when it is necessary or when they feel that it can be impunitive with damage to these people who they even say in 1901 in Downs versus Bidwell are alien races and do not have the right to the rest of the Constitution. So it's extremely interesting about citizenship there. And I, I advanced the slide so you could see a picture of uh, Alviso Campos, um, the president of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party while Denise was speaking. Um, I hope it wasn't too confusing there. But I, I want to talk about this, the, the idea of the flag there in the center is, is that picture that Dr. Black was talking about, about Christopher Columbus. Last week, we talked about this, this the claiming, the, the act of claiming through flags, right? And so I want to go back to and talk more about a compost because um, there was, as I said, there was an American government that was instilled in Puerto Rico out of Washington. Um, and in the Puerto Ricans, um, as they were protesting, trying to claim home rule, self-rule, uh, they, they eventually were able to get what's called the, the Elective Governor Act of, of 1947. There's this push and pull between Washington and Puerto Rico where um, Puerto Rico is, is, is trying to be self-advocating, self-determination, right? It's in the, the uh, Wilson's 14 points. And, and the, the United States, through the national government, is holding on, holding on, holding on, without really a clear understanding of what they're holding on to, that, that they're, um, they're not extending American citizenship until 1917, after they, they seized Puerto Rico in 1899. And then they don't let Puerto Ricans have their own government. And, and, and even, this is interesting, it was originally passed with nothing to do with Puerto Rico. The Smith Act of 1940 was really uh, a, an act that was legislated against 
possible Nazi sympathizers during World War II. But that act is then used later in the late 40s and in the 50s against American citizens, against Puerto Ricans. In the uh, Ley de la Moraza, the, this, this law of uh, Moraza, it, they actually banned the Puerto Rican flag. Again, think about our presentation from last week. The fact that the United States will not ban the swastika, the United States will not ban the Confederate flag, but at the same time, we espouse self-determination and, and we, we legislated against and made it a criminal act to fly the Puerto Rican flag for almost eight or nine years. Um, and, and eventually that was rescinded. And, and part of that rescindication comes from this, this Puerto Rican Nationalist Party and the, what's called the, the revolts of the 1950s. I, I used my little air quotes there because even the term revolt, right? Where we hear this now on the streets of America, uh, people using the words protest versus people using the word riot. Words matter. The words you use to describe an action indicate what you already, your predetermined conclusion about what those actions are about. So the fact that the literature calls it the revolts of the 1950s, when it's referring to um, Puerto Rico, but when we look at the United States uh, and the 13 colonies uh, revolting against the British Empire, we use completely different terminology. That is a revolution and, it, and its independence and its freedom. That's how the Puerto Ricans felt. And, and, and uh, Albuza Campos was, was such a good speaker, a, a uh, graduate of Harvard University, such a good speaker that these people on, on the right there, particularly the, the man on the far right, Oscar uh, Colarzo, um, they left their homeland. And I, I want you to just picture that. You're, you're leaving your homeland, you're making the effort financially, um, time, leaving family, going someplace that you, you might may not, not speak the language and feel culturally uh, comfortable. And they, these two gentlemen go to the United States, the mainland, they go to Washington, D.C., and President Truman at the time uh, was living in Blair House, uh, the, the White House was under renovations, and they tried to shoot the President of the United States. And I'm not condoning that action. Obviously, I'm trying to, to, to depict like the amount of emotion and frustration that has to be inside of somebody to, to go to that length to not just shoot at the President of the United States, other uh, Puerto Rican nationalists uh, fired shots in the U.S. House of Representatives. And, this, and so the, eventually the United States started extending freedoms to Puerto Ricans slowly, more and more, no more, but always holding on to something. Um, and Denise, I'd like you to describe um, the, your feelings about the, what eventually in recent years has, has become known as these, these referendums for Puerto Rico. And, and before you, you describe the referendums, I, I want to point out, look at the, the 2012 referendum gave to the Puerto Rican people three choices, and the 2017 only gave the Puerto Rican people two choices. And so when you look at data, the, the results are only as good as the question, right? And I know you probably have questions right now because you're wondering what these choices are. Denise. Great, and so I'm gonna go over this really quick because I know we're coming in on time. But the first referendum is introduced in 1967, right? And so we've seen only four since then. So you've got 93, 98, and then in 2012, Puerto Ricans are asked if they agree to continue with Puerto Rico's territorial status or if they wanna change their status to statehood, independence, sovereign nation and free association. So there's a considerable amount of options offered in a complex one stated kind of question that doesn't really make any sense to a lot of these people. But in the 2017 referendum, you have options that 
now grouped together these associations. So the idea of independence and free association being one option technically really isn't an option because Puerto Rico would have to become a sovereign nation in order to seek free association with America, which it can't because technically it is still listed as an American colony. So a lot of these referendums and voting structures are, are just extremely confusing to the Puerto Rican people as they don't really understand what independence can even mean for them as a group essentially to begin with. And as we pose these questions, we pose them in a way that they also reassociate Puerto Rico falling under American rule into whatever America would like seem to be happening because these ballots also just uh, do not associate in regards to any kind of issues with their sovereignty. So this is what's happening with the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party and that's what they're con constantly going against, which is why a lot of these votes in 2012 weren't even counted because over 500,000 ballots were blank because people didn't even want to vote because they knew that it was completely wrong what was in those papers. Um, out of respect for uh, Denise, and, and I want to get Denise to, uh, to address some of the other slides. I'm going to start skipping over some of the slides that I prepared. Uh, and I just want to point out, though, that uh, Puerto Ricans have served in the United States military uh, ever since they became part of the United States. And one of the most interesting facts is more Puerto Ricans lost their lives in the Vietnam War than almost a third of the other states in the Union. Uh, so the service of Puerto Ricans to their country at the same time that they're not even really allowed to have an opinion as to whether they want to be part of the uh, country is, is incredibly admirable. And in particular, I wanted to recognize um, Denise's service to America and to the community. Um, and Denise, maybe you could say a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I'm a New York Navy veteran and a Gold Star wife and serving has been part of my family for a considerable amount of time, both on my Cuban side and my Puerto Rican side. And I found that in my service, it was essential to really look back at what my ancestors had given to my community so I can understand how I fall into what would be American or Americanized or the New York Rican kind of definition. And so this, this particular talk is extremely close to my heart. And I really want to thank you again, both for allowing me to have this discussion with you all. We can't have it without you. Um, we're now going to look at uh, Puerto Rican demographics and and then and how uh, the lived experiences of Puerto Ricans have changed, particularly in the last um, 40 years, I would say, as they've started to get more and more uh, self-rule from the United States. Um, that one of the, the things that I find fascinating is, is that there are more Puerto Ricans that live in the, in the United States mainland than in Puerto Rico. And, uh, and it makes me sad uh, because as somebody who's an Irish American, I know that my ancestors didn't really have a lot of free will to come to the United States. They, they were forced to. And I, and I sympathize with the economic uh, strife in Puerto Rico that, that makes people feel that they need to leave their home in order to find economic uh, sustenance. Um, Denise, you have an awesome trivia about this slide as well. I do. So if you look at the island of Puerto Rico demographics in 2017, you see over 3 million people, which if you think back to the time of Mr. C.C., between Cuba and Puerto Rico alone, there are 3 million Tainos genocided within a small period of time. The entire population of 2017 Puerto Rico gone in the blink of an eye. I just want you guys to kind of visualize what these numbers really mean. 
And in one of the issues is, is in, in, within the demographics of Puerto Ricans is this idea of identity. Uh, the book on the last slide is by a friend of mine, Dr. Uh, Lisa Aranda, who's at the University of Southern um, Florida, South Florida. And she, she is, studies this, this, this uniquely Puerto Rican experience of, of who am I and identity. Denise, could you speak to that? Absolutely. And so when we when we look at the Puerto Rican, we see a combination of, of race and culture. So we're a mix of the Taino that are indigenous, West Africans that are brought over into this area by the Spanish as slaves, now combining with indigenous Taino, as well as the European Spaniard, a little bit of French, others from other Caribbean islands. So that comprises the entire Puerto Rican identity. And it takes us back to that beginning conversation conversation. What is the difference between Latino and Hispanic? Ultimately, we are neither. Our identity is not based in that sense. We are so combined. And this quote from Jose is perfect. You know, for visual reasons, yes, I consider myself Black. For reasons of identity, I consider myself Puerto Rican because it is completely different. We are comprised of so many things and ignoring any of those facets changes it who we are essentially at our core. This is also interesting as well as we look at the demographics and identity and now you're getting a 2020 census of America where most Puerto Ricans are identifying as white alone. When you look at Spanish census and the early American census, Puerto Rican and Spanish census is broken up into multiple facets, mulatto, white, black. This way, we kind of had an idea of what we were looking at in the kaleidoscope of tone. But now, with a US census, the majority of Puerto Ricans are forced to choose. Are you white? Are you black? Or are you some other race? When we are not either. We are the combination of all of it. So that also play, plays into our identity. And similar to a domestic abusive relationship in this sense, we have continued to be bombarded and being told of who we are and what we are. And instead of actually trying to push away, the Puerto Rican people fall into a land of confusion. Looking at yourself and judging your identity based on two options, white or black which and, is so much more. And even, and even the Spanish had even more options. And, and you can see there on the left are Spanish words and there on the right are words that were used by uh, the United States. Um, this, this taxonomy of people, of human beings based on a percentage of what their blood must be. This slide here is, is a slide that, that defines people's identity based on the amount of their whiteness. Um, and then this slide, similarly, defining human beings by by the, the amount of their blackness. And, and some of these terms, you heard Denise use the word mulatto. Um, there are uh, some of the other words you may not be familiar with, but, but these are racially charged words. The, the, the term uh, Sambo is, a, is, a, is an ethnic slur about, that has its roots in the taxonomy of human beings. Um, Dr. Black, speaking of taxonomy of human beings, the painting on the left is pretty uh, uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, so that's exactly where this is coming from. If we look at the art historical traditions of the Spanish colonization in the Caribbean, um, there is precedent for this taxonomy visually, right? So what we're looking at are uh, on the left is one of one sixteenth of a larger Costas painting, which we see a more full version on the right. Um, the the Spanish in the in the Caribbean uh, would 
taxonomize based on Carolus Linnaeus, a Swiss scientist, um, his ideas of determining plant life and animal life and categorizing them. Remember this, we're coming out of the enlightenment period. We're still sort of in the tail end of it when uh, European thinkers are putting everybody into nice neat little boxes and studying them and we're measuring people and uh, we're looking at physiognomy. Um, and, and even on the, the painting on the left, um, as a Castus painting, you see above the man, there's a, a text there above the woman a text there above the baby, a text there. And these Costas paintings, even the 116th portions of them, typically would have what category that particular person fell into, as if this was a scientific chart. There were also sumptuary laws during this time that would restrict what different categories of people could or could not wear. So these Costas paintings are really important for art historians and anthropologists and historians to see what sort of class level uh, people were assigned to based on how they were dressed and how they were identified by language uh, in the text above. So these larger scale Costas paintings, to sum up this slide, um, when they had the 16, eight to 16 different sort of vignettes, they would be sent back to Spain as sort of um, slideshows of what kind of people and what they were like and what they were allowed to wear lived in uh, the Caribbean and in the Spanish colonies so that other Spanish in Europe would know what to expect, how to study these people, how to think about these people and what their place was. And we see this through art history. Um, so, and moving on to uh, how this all affected education, building from this idea of the Enlightenment and taxonomy, there's a, a contemporary scholar, Nolan Cabrera, and he identifies as Latino. He's at the University of Arizona, and his research focuses on male whiteness in higher education. Uh, he argues that uh, we, we do not um, design curriculum based on affect of how this will um, impact students of color, but also how it will impact uh, white students, particularly male students, since the academy is historically designed to privilege white male students. So, for example, um, higher education in 19th century America, the Morrill Act, uh, President Lincoln was the president at this time, um, so not everybody is completely good, completely bad. There are shades of uh, questionable activity. Uh, president Lincoln allowed indigenous lands in North America to be parsed out, again, this parsing out of indigenous lands and sold. Uh, and that's how what we call land grant universities in the United States were established. And you see on the map here, some of the land grant universities locations, and they still exist today. Largely, these were agricultural and mechanical colleges built with slave labor, right? Slave labor, meaning people of color, uh, from the whole diaspora of people of color in America at that time, from the Caribbean, from Africa. And again, these universities were built to privilege whites. You had the means to join these universities, not the slave labor building them. Uh, there was another moral act passed in 1890, again, still privileging whites. And, and then it was also extended finally to Puerto Rico in 1908. Remember, Puerto Rico becomes part of the United States in 1898, 1899. Um, and, and in 1903, there was a school that was uh, started. It was later became known as the University of Puerto Rico, but they, they, they were not able to tap into federal resources until 1908. But even in 1908, as it becomes um, part of the Morrell Land Act um, uh, system in the United States of education, there are issues with, of language. Um, Denise, I know you spoke about the, the massacre already. I'd like to advance for the sake of time to the next slide. And, and, and I'm just gonna turn it over to you. Talk about that issue of language in, in education. 
So it's been interesting, especially with Puerto Rico, because you see that they've been completely dominated by the Spanish for so long. So now Spanish becomes their main language. The Spanish have been there since the 1500s. So obviously, by the time Americans come in, the inception of English and trying to bridge the gap becomes exceedingly difficult. Though America decides that they want to change everything to English, and then you see a reduction in the education of the Puerto Rican child and Puerto Rican children coming into the U.S. failing out of school because they just don't understand. So there's this idea that we have to be quick and adapting and overcoming as quickly as possible to this English language instruction, even though it was never our primary language to begin with. And the resistance that Puerto Rico took against this was by completely saying that no, public school would be taught in Spanish, and this is part of a larger resistance against this continual colonization and that mindset that Puerto Ricans have seen since the beginning. And, and then that plays into, if you can imagine, that if, if, you, if the primary and secondary schools are in Spanish, how successful can you be, um, all things being equal, if the, the um, universities who uh, follow federal guidelines and the Morrell Land Act and the Department of Education are based in English. And, that, and, and so we've seen um, a, a lack of of accessibility and an institutional racism in, in many ways. Um, not in many ways, it is institutional racism because the Puerto Ricans, when they come to school in the United States on the mainland or even in Puerto Rico, they don't have the background to be successful because the system has been set up against them. Mother Nature has been set up against Puerto Ricans in so many ways. Um, there have you, you, we have heard of Hurricane Maria. We can't forget Hurricane Maria, but but it's only the most recent of these violent, violent hurricanes that destroy infrastructure. And, and my question is, as I turn over to Dr. Black, is why why is the United States holding on to Puerto Rico if we're not helping Puerto Rico? That's a great question. And, you know, artists most recently uh, with the aftermath of Hurricane Maria uh, have responded again. Artists, you know this, you respond to what's going on in your cultural context uh, and visual culture in Puerto Rico is doing so in spades. In particular, I want to focus on the illustrator on the left, Edgar Miranda Rodriguez uh, and his La Borancania uh, uh, superhero. Next slide. And what's really interesting about her in terms of art and activism is this particular character isn't just a comic book heroine. Uh, she is out um, from uh, this particular artist, you know, responding to the COVID crisis right now, uh, responding to Hurricane Maria crisis in Puerto Rico. This is art as activism, right? This is what you artists do. What's really interesting about her from an art historical perspective is if you look at the passage on the left and her sort of hero backstory, heroine backstory rather, um, she, uh, she's a student and then she goes down to Puerto Rico and she's exploring the caves, right? And she sees these five small crystals, right? But what's important about this in terms of art history is this recent sort of explosion in scholarship about Taino art in the caves of Puerto Rico and the Caribbean as in my background. So this particular contemporary artist is acknowledging the importance of his own art historical narrative as an artist in Puerto Rico by looking to his art historical heritage. Next. Again, the cave art, right? This is a, if you are interested in art history, indigenous art history, this is the, this is what's on the cusp right now of art historical research. 
Uh, and I briefly want to mention, and Tom, you can uh, go through these as I talk. We don't have to focus on each one. Uh, contemporary installation artist, Pepon Osorio, uh, does these large-scale installations that respond to uh, stereotypes of the, of the di diaspora of the Caribbean cultures, um, uh, people of color. Um, and he does so through, in this particular installation called Scene of the Crime, Whose Crime? Like, what happened to our people? As uh, Denise pointed out earlier, the genocide, the ongoing genocide through education, metaphorically, ongoing genocide through social um, sort of restrictions, uh, metaphorically, that are limiting uh, the, the Caribbean diaspora. So today we looked at the indigenous roots of Puerto Rico. We briefly touched on the uh, period of Spanish uh, occupation, colonization of Puerto Rico. And then I tried to, we tried to walk you through uh, the relationship that the United States has had with Puerto Rico. And I think Denise's metaphor of uh, a victim of domestic violence is uh, sadly appropriate in many ways. I wanted to close us out here with uh, this, this uh, patriotic narration by Nicolas Vegas. Uh, it, he was one of the emigres that left after the 1899 uh, hurricane. And he, he actually emigrated to, with 3000 other Puerto Ricans to Hawaii. And I just thought it would be beautiful, Denise, if you're willing, if you could share with us the poem maybe in Spanish. Sure, no problem. So, del aquí país boricano, tierras de tan lindas flores, de ahí salimos señores, a este suelo hawaiano. Nadie pensaba olvidar aquel amable rincón y por, y por causa del ciclón, nos tuvimos que embarcar y empezamos a navegar para distancias regiones, afligados corazones, dejamos a nuestra espalda y de aquella tierra sana, de ahí salimos, señores. Beautiful, I 